are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. And now, bringing you the latest in science fiction movies and television shows, here are your here are your This is a capital. We have a little problem with our entrance and poop, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 135. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Hertzog. And hello, I am Miles P. McLaughlin. And we actually are doing something a little bit different this week because we don't have a... We aren't meeting this week, actually, to do a live show, so we're kind of pre-recording this. Mm-hmm. So the trivia that we gave you is going to be the same trivia as before. Do you want to repeat it now? Sure. Um, we'll repeat the trivia and give you yeah. a little bit of heads up on the trivia. But we're really here to bring you an interview that we did with Glenn Howman. If you don't know who this is, we're going to give you a heads up in just a little bit. But let's go ahead and share the trivia that we had from last week that they have until the 21st, I believe, of June to answer this trivia. And if you are a Battlestar Galactica fan, this is a trivia you do not want to miss, Miles. And especially the prize that we're giving out. Definitely the prize. So why don't you go ahead and give us a question. Name an actor who's who's seen on Battlestar Galactica who's played two different characters. And here's a clue. It's not a Cylon. And the answer is? Yes, for you to tell us. <laughs> yes. Yes, for you to tell us. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is this awesome prize? Uh, they will win an awesome uh, picture, of, an autographed picture of Michael Hogan. Yes. You know, all you needed from Michael Hogan was him dressing you down. You really don't need a signed photo from him. No. Him, him yelling at me and, and putting me in my place was, you know, how, how many people get – to say that they've had that happen to them. <laughs> no, we don't. That was awesome. I'm really glad that you did that, Miles. Mm-hmm. They do have a code word they need to include in that if they submit their answer. The code word is greatest. And you can call in that answer at 1-888-508-4343 or email us at the sci-fi under podcast at gmail.com. Well, tonight we have a very special guest with us who has done a little bit of writing, maybe more known in the comic field, and this is Glenn Hellman. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you know Glenn Hellman? Um, he has written written some Star Trek, but uh, he, he is a um, kind of a mainstay at the, at the cons. I, I mean, we, we see him at Farpoint and Shoreleave every year, and um, thought he did a good refereeing job at the um, uh, roast for uh, Bob Greenberger this past year. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, here's the thing with Glenn Allen. He's one of the nicest guys you'll meet, mm-hmm. and he is behind the scenes – like for crazy press and helping that endeavor get off the ground. Right. He is he's he has his own comic story. He's totally into comics. I remember sitting in the con suite at Farpoint mm-hmm. this past year and Glenn Hellman and Aaron Rosenberg going at it on whether Captain America's costume in the new movie was gonna suck. <laughs> you know, that would have been a fun conversation. They were, they were very to. opinionated about it. Oh, they I were, mean. you know, <laughs> the old style versus the new style and it this looks so chintzy, and they never liked Captain America's outfit. Da, 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 da. It was quite interesting. Quite that would have been an entertaining conversation to hear. Right, right. I don't know if we captured any of that in the interview. Were you in on that interview? Uh, no, unfortunately, I was not. I think you were interviewing Peter David at that time, that or something like that. Right. But we had a chance to chat with Glenn Hellman, and we're going to share this interview with you, and uh, and he'll give all stats and where you can find them uh, doing the course of the interview. And when it ends, we're just going to wrap up the show and go from there. Okay. So uh, we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoy this interview that we're bringing you with Glenn Howman. 
Wonderful. All right. All right. Well, my name's Scott Hartzog. I'm sitting down with Glenn Helm. I'm saying your name right. Yes, you are. Uh, How you doing? Who, and we're here at Farpoint 2012 and uh, chatting about some of his work, both in writing and comics, and he's doing this little uh, venture called Crazy Eight. And, and, and the venture called Comic Mix and all sorts of other things. Right. Yeah, he has too he, much. I, I, my production card actually says, you know, production manager of Comic Mix. I have said for, even though I'm the vice president and general manager, I'm, I'm a full partner in it, everything else like that, I have often said that my business card should actually read utility infielder. <laughs> um, I have said for a very, most of my career has been a situation where I am nobody's first choice for anything, but I'm everybody's second choice for everything. Um, usually, most of what my work tends to be is if somebody needs something that is out of the ordinary or that they don't that there's nobody who's specifically tasked in the company to do ask me um, usually because I will come up with some sort of synth- if you're synthesizing things that have never been synthesized before you know try and come, you know ask Glenn he might either know somebody who already knows how to do this or may be able to you know do a good shot of this himself whatever that may happen to be um, I've you know, I've done things for uh, Simon Schuster Interactive, for example, in the CD-ROM project, and you know when they were doing CD-ROM games, and all of a sudden we said, "Okay, we need to rewrite a large chunk of this because we can't do this type of story." It's like, "Okay, fine." Now I'm re- rewriting parts of video games. All right, uh, we need to learn how to burn, you know, DVDs. We need to how to do artwork. You know, any number of strange things that there haven't necessarily been job descriptions for. Right. Um, and that's you know, so. My skill set is improvisation. <laughs> right, there you go. Um, whatever it may happen to be, you know, I have enough skills in any number of different areas to be able to sit down and solve this problem. Right. Um, which is great for a small company. And, and in a lot of science fiction and a lot of stuff like that, it is small company stuff. It's a lot of things where people, you know, in a big company, usually they'll sit down and they'll hire, oh, okay, we need a, we need a JavaScript programmer who can sit down and is familiar with you know, MySQL stuff. It's like, well, okay, fine. And you can hire for precisely that position. Right. But usually when you sit down and say, okay, we need somebody who knows JavaScript, um, MySQL, Photoshop, and can also write copy, you know, nobody asks for that sort of thing in a job listing. Right. And I end up doing stuff like that. So, for example, in Comic Mix, um, as the production manager... I often find myself doing art corrections. I'll find myself coloring entire comic books or doing lettering, and in some cases being the last editorial eyes on a book and everything else like that because it's a little bit of everything. You know. So we need we do need to establish with our listeners who don't know no. you. Okay. But what is first of all? Let's talk about. Let's, you mentioned Comics Mix. Let's okay. start. Let's start there. Com- what is Comic Mix? Comic Mix is an online site. www.comicmix.com. Pretty easy. I certainly hope so. Oh, yeah, comic mix. Comic mix, yes. Um, and yes, you can spell it comics with C-O-M-I-X, M-I-X, but it's C-O-M-I-C, M-I-X, anything like that. Yeah. We got we'll all of the extra ones, yeah. Um, where we do news, reviews, online comics, commentary, any number of fun stuff with comics. Uh, with a, generally with an insider's baseball perspective. Um, my I've worked at DC Comics back uh, about... Remember years ago, um, I uh, my business partner Mike Gold uh, was the director of development for DC Comics for a number of years. Before that, he founded First Comics. Uh, he was the editor on books like American Flag, and Badger, and uh, Star Slayer, and Grimjack, and 
John Sable Freelance, which all the all the stuff I had at first in those days. And then he came to DC and was the editor on The Flash and The Question and Wasteland and Legends, all sorts of fun stuff like that. So and on the site we have columns from people like John Ostrander, um, Denny O'Neill, who you know is still the Batman writer for for, for most people. Uh, Mindy Newell, who wrote Catwoman for a number of years, uh, Michael Davis, who uh, was the one of the founders of Milestone Media, and then went on to fa- to run Motown Animation for a number of years. All sorts of fun stuff like that. So usually, just by the sheer number of contacts of people we have in the industry, we can come at this from a very inside baseball point of view. Oh yeah, absolutely. And usually telling stories that most people sit down and go, "How the hell did this happen?" Um, <laughs> It's always the question, isn't it? It really is. Uh, in, in a number of cases, like, how the heck did this, you know, you know, somebody asked, a, um, there was a question not terribly long, somebody asked, John Sable Freelance, which is this men's adventure story, you know, right. danger, you know, really realistic. And the first film artist that we ever, that ever showed up in the run of John Sable Freelance was Sergio Aragonis. Okay. You know, the guy who does Gru. Right. What is the guy who's doing Gru... You know why is he doing this rough and tumble men's adventure guy? And and it started with those magic five words. Well, Mike Grell was late, and <laughs> and, um, and they did a story. It turned out that the lead character John Sable has a secret identity of his own. You know he's known as a mercenary, everything else like that. But he also has a secret identity as a best-selling children's book author. And at one point they had to do the Mike Grell was late, and they did half the issue of the children's book that he was selling that was getting turned into animation. And they had Sergio Argonis come in and tell the story, draw the story about leprechauns living in Central Park. Perfectly fine. Got the book back on schedule, and it was a fun issue. Um, and that's, so just saying, well, how do these stories come about? How did you get this, you know, how do you lose a Neil Gaiman script, for example, which was one story that, you know, over at DC Comics, uh, they were talking about how do you lose a Neil Gaiman script. Neil was supposed to write the last issue. Was one of the people who was going to write the last issue of Action Comics Weekly. Um, and well, it didn't happen because it required Superman to know Green Lantern's identity. And at the time, there was a question as to whether or not he knew his identity or not. And it, long continuity silliness, right? You know, and and then it got kicked in the corner for a number of years. And then they happened to find it, and they said, "Okay, let's finally do this as a story because now it's Neil Gaiman." Right. Back then it was Neil Gaiman. Yeah, Neil Neil was was well known, but he wasn't, you know Neil Gaiman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that was that was back when you could still approach him and you know, when audiences and not have a flock of young women going, ah. <laughs> If only so, all comic book writers did. Only, only a small percentage. Yes, right. it doesn't happen anywhere near as much. And what, we, what, what? So, what got you interested in comics? Where did your got, comic background? My from? comic background started like most people's, you know, as a child. Right. You know, I, I can actually. I was one of those people who could actually point out where the first comic I ever bought. And I was so, tell me about it. Um, I can even mention the issue: Batman two fifty one. Okay. Uh, the Joker's five way revenge. Denny O'Neill writing, Neil Adams doing the artwork, arguably, and as a number of people have said, one of the best Batman stories and one of the best Joker stories ever done in the medium. You can actually see that there have been, um, at various conventions, when they do poster blow-ups of, of famous comic book covers, that's the one that they have for Batman. 
it's if you see the cover, you know the issue. And I was so pleased when I worked at um, when I was working in DC's production department for a while. One of the books they were doing was the greatest Joker stories ever told. So I actually got to handle the film negatives and was and was preparing the book to bring it to a whole new generation. I was just so happy about that. Just a small part of that. This is the one that brought you into the subject. That was yeah, exactly. The one that that, one of the things that brought me in and said that and I get to bring this to a whole new generation. I feel I feel. It, just a very small part of the, of that thing of bringing it to a whole bunch of new people who were, you know, just coming to comics books because at the time the book was coming out for the Tim Burton Batman movie, and so they had a book, the greatest Batman stories ever told, the greatest Joker stories ever told, and people said, "Oh, okay, cool," and it really was one of those great stories. I got into it, and you know, as a lot of kids, you know, you sit down, you draw the stuff, as you know, playing around with it, everything so, else like that. Before you get into that, sure, why Batman? Do you remember that? It was on the. I think it was on the stands. Uh, I'm not sure that I was. You know, I was three years old when the comic came out. I'm okay. not sure that I was being that discriminating. I might have recognized it because at the time, Channel 11 in New York was rerunning the old Adam West TV show. Okay. You know, they were running like, reruns oh, of Saturday. So yeah, I, you know, you have some recognition. So three years old, you were. I was a precocious kid, yeah, exactly. And you're sitting there going, oh, Batman, Adam West, okay, this is fun and everything. And and then you sit down and you read. The Joker's Five-Way Revenge, and you go, Whoa! Because, for one thing, it's Neil Adams. It was very realistic, and it's Danny O'Neill telling this rather rough story about the Joker who's just gotten out of prison, and he's deciding to figure out which of his former five henchmen betrayed him, and he's going out and trying to kill all of them. Right, this is not Adam Weston. Yeah, this doesn't exactly show up in the comics. And, and of course, as a little kid, you're sitting there going, Okay, I'm hooked. You know, and right. you still get that sense of wonder and everything. But now, were you able to at that age? Were you able to do like a lot of reading, reading for it, uh, or was it mostly just looking at the picture? Oh no, I was I was reading. I was I like I said, a ridiculously precocious kid reading some of this stuff and going, "Oh yes, let's have it." Yeah, um, and it's also at the time you could get away with telling you, you were doing a twenty-two. You know, the the issue was done in one. You could read you know twenty-two pages or however many pages it was. It wasn't that hard to you know to figure out what was going on. Right. As compared to, you know, now you have to read a long, extended graphic novel, everything else like that. It wasn't that it was necessarily hard reading, but it was more the subject matter. And even today, the story isn't that hard. It's very, you know, straightforward, and, you know, Denny was writing for a young, a comparatively younger audience. But it was more the tone of the story that was very, very different. The fact that, you know, you have, um, you know, somebody runs, you know, one of the great sequences in there is that, you know, um, Batman is coming to knock on the door of one of the henchmen, and the henchman runs, and he proceeds to do this. They spend an entire page of the henchman sitting out, ducking behind alleyways, going over buildings, crawling through a sewer, coming out eight blocks away from where he was. No way the Batman's ever going to sit down and find me. And grab my As I was saying, ah! Yeah. So is that whole that whole? Experience? Yeah, and it's a very different. It was a very different sort of feel as to what the heck was going so, on. So as a result of this, you begun. You began I started. Drawing. I started with comic. I was. I was. I was drawing stuff as as any kid was going to do. It so happened that I knew. You know, I I just followed the stuff kind of really very heavily. It just clicked um, for a lot of reasons, and I started drawing, and I had some drawing skill, and there were comic book artists in my town. As a matter of fact, um, when I was in junior high school. I'm, of the story here, I took le- my local art studio was giving art lessons by John Basema, 
the Conan artist. Right. The 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 Marvel the, artist. The was, Conan artist. The, well, the Conan artist. You know, some people say Barry Winston. Certainly, arguably the 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 Marvel artist of the seventies. Okay. You know the guy who did everything. You know the guy who did the Avengers. The guy who did the Fantastic Four. The guy. I mean. The, the guy who did all those great posters, the the, sil- the definitive Silver Surfer, the definitive, right. you know, choose your list, and pretty much it's John Buscema. And he's teaching art to, you know, he's, just for the hell of it, he's the guy who drew Marvel, co- how to draw comics the Marvel way, and he's teaching a class, I'm there, I'm junior high, I'm sitting there watching this, I'm, I'm there instantaneously. And I remember the, the point where I began to realize I was kind of outclassed on all this, and John was sitting down lecturing people, and there was an easel behind him, and he's sketching on the easel. He's not even looking at it. He's sketching over his shoulder, and he's just making circles, and he's drawing along, and making sketches. He looks once in a while to just see this, and all of a sudden, Conan is appearing on this easel, and he's barely even looking at it. It's this great Conan sketch, and he's doing it over his shoulder, not even Without looking. Without even looking. Barely looking at the thing, and I'm sitting there going, oh, there's no way. I'm never going to be this good. I'm never going to be this great in my life. And it actually wrecked my confidence for a while on a lot of this stuff. Um, I mean, I I still had enough graphic design, and I was you know competent, but I, part of it is all of a sudden realizing I'm nowhere, I, and suddenly going, Okay, I didn't realize exactly how good this was, or how how tricky this sort of thing is, and so I found myself in, in doing other stuff, still you know occasionally writing stuff and things like that, and knowing a lot of the people who were involved. Uh, I knew um, Bob Greenberger. For, I'd met him in a couple of things. I'd met Peter David through. Um, I, I started working at a local comic book store uh, that opened up. Uh, Probably, in, I think, like my sophomore year of high school, my freshman sophomore year of high school, and I knew a lot of people from the industry in different in different contexts. Right. You know, I knew Peter David when he was still working at the, as the direct sales guy at Marvel, for example. Okay. And I've I've known Peter now for 25, 30 years, something like that. <laughs> um, and again, knowing some of the, the and just catching up with some of these people. My dad uh, went to the same bar, uh, hung out at the same bar that Don Heck. The guy who created Iron Man and right. you know, did all those great Avengers had done that for a long time. So I met Don Heck at a very early age, and you know, walked into his studio and was like, "So this is how the magic happens." Okay, now I understand <laughs> and understanding some of that stuff. And and again, and then unfortunately, and then you know, the time December, okay, I can learn how to draw this stuff. And then seeing, oh man, okay, that, that bit of weight class. Until you start learning some of the tricks of the trade and some of the other things, like, oh no, no, we're just slapping this stuff on here. It's like. Is that all it is? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, and then uh, when I went off to college, you know, I was working stuff in, and you know, still doing things with communications. I interned at DC Comics for uh, while I was in college. Um, a job that I got again, part of the improvisation, knowing a whole bunch of different things. Right. I got the job because I knew how to operate a stack camera. Okay. Uh, which is this giant oversight. <laughs> Your audience, hopefully, will never have to know what these things are. Right. But it was, you know. But a part of the history of it. Yeah, part of history, yes. It's, 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 it's this giant camera about half the size of an old Volkswagen um, where you had to sit down, kneel down, put, um, put artwork, clamp it into place under glass, and then um, 
move the camera lens with a hand crank. If you've seen those old-timey cameras that, you know, people have, you know, in, in old-timey films where the little accordion thing at the front right. is the focus, picture that blown up to about 20 times the, that size, and that's what I was working with. And um, the, the object of these was to what? To photograph the comic book page? To photograph the comic book page because to make um, enlargements, to make reductions, to make n- multiple copies for different and sundry purposes that a Xerox machine wasn't good enough for or that did larger enlargements than a Xerox machine could handle. Right. Um, one of the things that we had to do, and to do occasionally other photographic tricks. Um, at the time, for example, DC Comics was doing um, Baxter books, uh, what they were called Baxter books, where the, the, pa- the artwork was bleeding out to the edge of the page. Well, that was fine, but that meant you drew on a slightly larger piece of artwork and that larger piece of artwork, when they were making, getting it ready for the colorist, they couldn't just slap it onto a Xerox machine and shrink it down because the artwork was too big. Mm-hmm. So every Baxter book that came in had to go through a stack camera and be shot and made copies and sent out that way. Mm-hmm. So that's what I had to do. Um, a different thing that you had to do in the dark room. if you ever... I'm going to assume that all your listeners have read Sandman by Neil Gaiman. Okay. And if they haven't, go out and buy it now. What are Sand- you waiting for? Stop the podcast. <laughs> no, don't, don't stop the podcast. You then go back and do that. Right. Um, but the lead character, Morpheus, spoke in white letters on a black background. That funky effect. Well, they didn't do that. You know, they don't draw it that way. They don't actually have a black word balloon with white letters. They drew it normally... And then they brought it in and made a photographic negative of it. Right. And then put that on there. That was one of the things I did, you know, for the first six issues of Sandman. And everybody, <laughs> yes, that was my uh, big claim to fame. I actually mentioned that at a convention. I went, ooh, big. Uh, and then somebody said, dude, shut up. You worked on Sandman. Get out of here. I don't want to hear. <laughs> you worked on the first six issues of Sandman. Shut up. I, uh. um, so I did. And in cases, there's also a lot of stuff that goes on in the comic book company that does not necessarily have anything to do directly with the comic books. Right. Um, most of what I was doing for a number of months I was there was shooting bat logos. Anything that you could put a bat logo on in all sorts of different sizes we had coming through, whether it be T-shirts, wristwatches, mugs, signs, Pen- everything. Pencils, blah, blah, blah. All for the Batman movie. Yeah. You know, little, little square buttons, uh, bob- uh, so many different things of bat artwork that came in and, and had to be done for movie production, for movie stills, for licensors who are doing any number of different sorts of licensing, that's what we had to do. Um, when I finished up my college days, um, there was this thing called the internet that was beginning to get big. So I was doing some... St- I had actually... I first went to work for a uh, production house, again, uh, an outside production house, not working for DC directly, but still actually doing a lot of stuff for DC. Because at that point, they were doing painted covers and they we were the guys who were scanning it in and making them so that you can make scans for um, comic for uh, comic book covers. So a lot of the painted covers that were coming out in 92 and 93, I had my hands in there. Um, and then, like I said, there was this internet thing that was getting kind of big, and I started doing online books, and then you know started an online company called Bibliobytes, uh, which was one of the pioneers in ebook publishing. Uh, we got into it so early, my domain name was bb.com. I had a double letter domain name. Wow. Yeah. AA is American Airlines. Do you still own it? No. I sold it back in two th- uh, beginning of 2002. Uh, Bibliobytes closed down. We had done okay. 
uh, and then we got nailed by like a quadruple bank shot uh, after 9-11. A mm. um, couple of things. We got nailed by a computer virus um, like eight days, uh, like five days after 9-11. And the virus, it <laughs> shut down parts of the computer, made it difficult to, it had done strange accessing. But the creation date of some of the files that were on there were at 8.46 on September 11th, 8.46 a.m., which was the exact time when planes were going into the First World Trade Center. So I see that immediately. My first, I'm, This is at 2 in the morning. I'm on the telephone to the computer emergency response team and saying, uh, Guys, I don't know what's going on here, but... Um, <laughs> If they're going, if there's some virus that's going through like A, B, C, D, or A, A, B, B, so on and so forth, I'm going to be one of the first people hit. So, yeah, okay, yeah, you want me to ship the entire hard drive off to you? Okay, fine, here, take the servers. <laughs> and did that immediately. Had to do it. Um, it turned out earlier it was just a, it was a sequel worm that nobody knew what was going on, but it was at that time of, it was at, it was the at The timing a, was just uncanny. The, the timing was not only uncanny, but it was at, it was also at a time when everybody was on serious edge. I mean, I happened to see, right. you know, I was, I was, I saw the towers drop from my street where I lived in, you know, I lived in a place that I had a view of the Twin Towers. So we were all kind of on edge on a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. And when that sort of stuff happens, you sit down and, you know, my wife, actually, in, I think at the time it happened, anthrax had just shown up um, across the street from the building where my wife worked. You know, we were all kind of, we had no idea. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, planes are coming, anthrax attack, and now cyber attack. Okay, fine. Ship it off to these guys and let them deal with it. So that kind of limited my ability to get back up to speed. My... Um, at the time, Bibliobus was supporting itself by advertising, and advertising dried up really fast after 9-11. And my computer supplier, the person who I was hosting with, um, closed down their doors about three months after 9-11 because their business had just dropped tremendously in New York. So I took this as a sign and said, oh, and, oh yeah, my wife had also just lost her job. So we took all this as a sign and said, okay, this is, this is a sign, let's close down the business. Sold off the domain name and uh, you know did other stuff like that, and figured out. Well, now what am I going to do? Right. Did a few other things with different internet companies, and then for um, and then about uh, somewhere around 2005, Mike Gold, who used to be at DC Comics, calls me up. He says he's packaging comic books for IDW, and they're doing new versions of Grimjack, and they're doing new versions of John Sable. And they want to have a web presence, and they want to do other, you know, make sure that there's good so- stuff like that. The term social media hadn't been really coined yet, but they want to make sure there was a website and things like that to discuss right. it. And I say, sure, I'll be happy to help out. And I do so much stuff along the way that I'm basically become the assistant editor of the, bo- of the comics. Right. And at one point, again, getting back to the previous statement, well, Micro was late, um, I ended up coloring um, a few issues, uh, I ended up coloring an issue and a half of John Sable Freelance. Because the book was so late that the colorist who was supposed to be doing it wasn't available. And if it had to be done immediately or else the book was going to get canceled. So, right. so there I was. And all of a sudden, okay, I'm coloring comic books. I'm back in the comic book industry. Great. After we finish those six issue miniseries, Mike and I start talking about, okay, so what are we going to do for, you know, how is the industry changing and how can we take advantage of this? How can we prepare for this? 
and we start talking about, well, we've got to start looking at the possibility that there are going to be electronic comic books really soon. Well, that's fine. How do we get the other stuff on there? Well, and we, we go back and forth, and we say, okay, we need to we need to start up a, a, a comic book company that does stuff online. Okay, let's do it. And there we went. And there's com- and comics mix came out of that. Comic mix came out of that directly. Basically, it was a situation where you had Mike, you had myself, and Mike then said to me, okay, Glenn, you need somebody. As near as I can tell, we need somebody who's got. We need like five people. We need one guy who's really rich to, to fund all this. We need a we need a heavy duty computer programmer. We need somebody who can do a database who can build some of these databases and somebody who knows comics. So basically I'm looking at you're hiring three to five more we need three to five more players. And I turned to Mike and said, I can do it in one guy. So a gentleman by the name of Brian Alvey who builds ridiculously large large websites for fun and profit. And at the time he had just um, he was one of the founders of a company called Weblogs Inc. Okay. Uh, who do things like who at the time had done stuff like Cinematical and TV Squad and in uh, Gadget uh, was theirs and a few other stuff like that. And they just sold it to AOL about two years earlier for a ridiculous amount of money. He had been a senior vice president at AOL, uh, had relaunched Netscape over there, and he was in the process of being eased out for a variety of reasons. He'd done his time and now they wanted to do something else and he was looking to do something else. Mm-hmm. So I went to Brian and said, how do I save the comic book industry? And he said, how are we going to try and do this? And we laid it all out and he said, I'm in. So, and that went on for all that for a while. And, you know, and now we're still doing comics and other fun stuff. Brian got busy again doing other online development. He's now doing, um, his company Crowdfusion is now the back end for... TMZ.com and the Daily uh, iPad app and, the, and um, Essence Magazine and a few other really large, gigantic right. websites. So yeah, he's keeping busy. So a long so, so how does so how does all this tie in with all the other stuff that I'm doing? Yeah, um, Crazy Eight comes along. The a number of the authors like Peter David and. Bob Greenberger and Michael Jan Freeman, Bob who had already been doing writing for comic books at the time, and again, who I knew from my days at DC and all of that other good stuff. And we and they said, okay, there's some changes that are really beginning to happen in the publishing industry. And ebooks are beginning to be a problem, but also mid-list authors are beginning to be trimmed out. You know, they're only going for you know super mega mega blockbusters and other we want to take control of our writing careers. And uh, who doesn't, right? Right, exactly. Well, there are some people who are quite happy to let other people, you know, go and handle some of this stuff, but, you know, there's also some people who want to make sure that they can do things their own way. And we said, okay, fine. Well, how do we do it? Well, we need to do this stuff online. We need to do this preparation. And there we go. So it, so we said, all right, fine. Let's get, if you guys got writing, okay. And I can provide the technical stuff and, and, and how he's got a barn? Let's let's put on a show. That's pretty much how this stuff happens. Again. Again. So for my sins, I got dragged back into e-publishing after after Bibliobytes. So. Right. And so you're back in you're back into that, and you're just kind of are you you're kind of back in, or are you doing any of your own publishing through this? I'm doing well. As I said, I don't have. There's all the comic stuff is still going through Comic Mix, right? And all the things I do there. Um, and occasionally I have I have a few short stories that I've written over the years. I've written various things for, as I said, for Star Trek. 
Uh, I've written stuff for uh, the this Starfleet Corps of Engineers stuff. I, I actually wrote the first Klingon Jewish wedding ceremony. There uh, you go. Which I, I wrote that somewhere around uh, 2004, I think is when that came out. Okay. Um, which, you know, got a tremendous amount of play and coverage. I still haven't been able to read all the reviews of it because there have been reviews published in Israel and I don't read Hebrew. So it was... I was told that they were actually pretty decent reviews, but, you know... Google Translate. Bring it uh, in. Uh, <laughs> I, they don't do Hebrew translations, oddly enough. I, I've tried. Believe me. I, I, <laughs> I would love to read some of this stuff, and I just don't know somebody who knows enough Hebrew to be able to sit down and translate this. Right. Uh, but, I mean, at the time, it got that story got covered on NPR. It got covered, um, you know, a couple of newspapers. The Jewish Daily Forward was, you know, covering it, which was nice because... At least at this point, you can sit down and go, yeah, the, the real Jewish-controlled media, you know, has... Um, and it was, it was great seeing the reaction to that story because a lot of people were very happy to see that their faith, that their traditions were carried forth into the 24th century, that they believe, you know, it was a sign of hope. A lot of, I know a lot of people took comfort in the fact that there was a future for them. In the same way that Nichelle Nichols talks about her ex- experience as a Hura, and the number of people who came up to her and said, wow, in the future we're not marginalized, we're not anything else like this. In the future we're all part of the same, you know, part of the same team, we're part of the same crew, and it gave hope to what was going to happen in the future. And I got a lot of that from the Jewish community, that their traditions were going to be respected, even if they were intermarrying. And right. as I was saying, yeah, because, you, know, right. you know, all of a sudden, you know, you know you're, she's marrying a Klingon? What are you talking about? You know, right. Um, are they going to keep kosher at least? You know, that, and it, it made for some great stories. Um, but for the most part, I don't have... I don't have the writer's... I don't want to say impulse. I don't have the, the same compulsion. I was going to say that, drive. That yeah, works. well, no, it, it, there's, there's a drive to tell stories. I do get occasionally drives to, you know, express ideas and anything else like that. It just doesn't necessarily always come out in writing. In some cases, I get this great idea, and it's like, okay, great, now I have to start a business. You know, oh, right. here, I, got the, I have this great idea. Oh, I can get a patent on it. Oh, it, it is patentable. Okay, fine. Uh, how do you? Well, great, now i got to start a business to go ahead. All right, if that's what it takes. Um... I was inspired. There was an inspiration. I, if you ever saw the George Lucas um, episode of American Masters, uh, the PBS documentary, and he's being interviewed and stuff like that, and he talks about the creation of Skywalker Sound, and he says that he built Skywalker Sound because he needed it, and I was just knocked on my tail on this, and he's because here's a guy who. In, who builds from scratch the greatest sound recording facility, the leader of the field for movies and anything else like that. Skywalker's out. He builds the best thing as an, as an aside, as an afterthought, because he needed it to do something else. Right. That floored me. I and all of a sudden I remember looking there going, I understand it. I, you know, and to sit down and need that type of not only chutzpah, not even chutzpah, but just 
okay, this is the only way to solve the problem. All right, fine. I got I have to go build the best on the planet to go do this. All right, fine. There and the same argument with ILM. He built the best special effects house in the world because he needed it to tell the stories he wanted right. to tell. You know, okay, this is how you got to do it. Right. I understand that and I respect that tremendously about George Lucas. The fact that he's willing to sit down, you know, and for that matter, James Cameron, um, saying, all right, I need to go, these are the stories I want to tell. All right, fine. I got to build an entirely new way of telling, you know, I got to start filming an IMAX. I got to, I have to find a way to bring an IMAX camera down to the bottom of the ocean. Right. And find a way that this will work so that the lens won't crack under ocean pressures. And it's in a, this is what you have to do. That level of drive fascinates me. But so, it's also... It, and this plays into Crazy 8, then. Exactly. There's a need. There's, a need. there's these offsetting, right. changing. How, how do we, how do we number one, tap into this? And sure. how do we take control of our own thing? Absolutely. How do, we, how do we sit down and get out? You know, there's a problem here. We aren't reaching, you know... The old system is breaking down, and there are a lot of fans who want our stuff, and you know, and we need to eat. But right, how do we, you know, how do we get past all this, and how do we, how do we reach that audience? And in some cases, that means okay, fine, we've got to build a large, you know, we've got to change the infrastructure. And you know, when I started Biblioize, that was exactly, you know, I saw the same thing coming. I just got there a little bit too early um, to make a huge amount of money off of it, but I got there it, enough to sit down and say, okay, this is where the, the these are the problems we're going to start encountering. Um, we have to start addressing these in advance. We have to start worrying about contracts, we have to start worrying about infrastructure, we have to start worrying about all the dumb little things. And it's amazing because when I've gotten back in, I, I after 2001, I got away from a lot of these arguments. Uh, when after I closed Billy OSM, I just for sanity's sake, I stopped looking at this. But now that I'm back in Crazy Eight, I'm hearing the same arguments. I'm going to seminars, and I'm hearing the same arguments that we were coming up with 15 years ago. Right. You know, it's it's not. And it's the same thing. Well, how did we reach our? Well, you know, what about paper costs? And what about? And you know, who wants to stare at a computer screen for you know 12 hours at a time when people obviously do scare, stare at computer screens for 12 hours at a time? Won't it destroy literature? I just like the smell of paper. And all the same, you know, it's, it's the same questions all over again. Right. And at least to be fair, everybody answers them differently. Right. Because everybody has different needs to get out of it. Some people want to have that firm feel of paper and, you know, that solid book. And we can, you know, and we can do that nowadays. Okay, for those people, how do we get a book in that format? For those people who want to have something they can read on their iPhone, how do we do that? So on and so forth. Right. Um, and Crazy Eight's able to do that. Yeah, and and we we try to do it. And how do we, and for the author side for the creator, how do I get out the stories that can't go out any other way? I mean, how do how do I get out stories that traditional publishing has no idea how to promote? How do I tell how do I tell a story? How do I do a political satire of modern day events, but I'm disguising it by telling it in the time of King Arthur? For example, um, is that the Peter David book? That's the Peter David. That's the Camelot Papers. Right. That came out last year, shortly. That we yes, that came out uh, last July or thereabouts. Yeah. Um, how do we get a story? You know, how do we tell a story about? I've, I've got a murder mystery, but it's set in an alternate. Um, it's set in an alternate Mexico where Cortez never showed up, so the Aztec civilization is still alive and kicking. Uh, but it just migrated and grew twenty years. 
how do I tell that story? Because, you know, how do you promote that to people? Well, that's sort of stuff that, you know, how do we get these stories and how do we solve these problems? And that's what... And again, when nobody knows exactly what we're doing or nobody, there's no obvious answer, that seems to be the place where somebody says, hey, go ahead. And there I go. There you go again. So what... Uh, so Crazy launched... What, last shortly, I think, was the official yes. launch date of it. How many books do you now have? Um, we've got... On Crazy Eight. I'm trying to think. We've got at least um, one, two, three, four, five. Um, I'm going to say six, six novels. I think yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to do this from memory. Uh, a couple, of no- a few short stories, a couple of novellas, one unproduced screenplay, um, and probably a few other odd things that are coming down the pike shortly. Um, and more stuff is coming. We're trying. We try to get something out. Um, Usually we've got one or two things coming out every month. It's just a, it's more a function of how much production time can we throw at the problem. Right. Um, there are only so many hours in the day, which is one of the reasons why I'm not doing a lot of the writing. I can, unless there's something that's screaming for me to get out that I feel I can tell better than anybody else. You know, I can. There, I don't need to add to this sort of stuff. I am needed over here. Right. You know, and that's. It seems to work for me.